Mark chapter 16. Um, we are gonna be finishing the book of Mark today. Let me read this to you. We're, gonna, we're just gonna, we're gonna finish this out. We're gonna look at, you know, this is Easter part two. Uh, Easter is not just one event. It, this marks the Easter season. And so let's look at the resurrection from Mark's perspective. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices. They bought spices, it's important, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of this tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he was going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb from trembling, uh, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Lord, thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you that you conquered death. Thank you that there's hope. That's what that means, that there is hope forevermore. Lord, let us see the hope. Let us cling to it today. And I pray that it would be a, a future hope that would come back and um, infuse our present with strength and faith and endurance and all the things we need to bring your kingdom and the news of the resurrection here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, Mark's, Mark's reading or Mark's account of the resurrection is by, fall, is by far the shortest. Um, but everything is here. Everything we need is right here. And it's a short. Mark, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit today. Probably, I'll probably repeat it. Mark is all about efficiency. In fact, all of, you need to understand, I guess, all of the ancient writers were, were all about efficiency. <clears throat> and what that means is, it was expensive. It was expensive in that day to um, buy the parchment, papyrus, the, the scrolls, the ink, those types of things, put oral testimonies that they've been hearing in the culture, the eyewitness reports, to put it down to paper. They had to be succinct. They had to be efficient. And that tells us that what they did write down Everything is important, and it tells us what they wrote down twice is even more important, and it tells us what they spent time to write down three times is extremely important. They're saying something with that. This has everything that we need. Mark, he, brings, he puts this succinctly. He says, as much as the resurrection can say in the most efficient, succinct way. Um, to, to this morning, we're just going to cover three things. Mark believes... Mark holds, as do all the gospel writers, and as do Christians, that the, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a real, historic, objective event. 
That's incredibly important, and you see it, in, you see it here in our, in our section, in our passage. Mark believes this is real. It's not a symbol. It's not a neat idea. You know, spring comes after winter. It's, not, it's more than that. This actually happened in our time on this planet, in our, in our history. This, this happened, okay? So we'll go over that. Secondly, Mark shows us that the resurrection is an explosion of grace. I don't know how else to say that. I feel like even that is a minimization of what this is. Um, I, I actually sat in a coffee shop yesterday and labored for about 30 minutes on a better way to say that because I felt so inadequate just saying that. Like explosion is the best thing I could come up with. But it, it is the finality or the expression, capital T, capital H, capital E, the expression of all of the redemptive history exploding onto the scene. God's absolute intent, the end game, comes out in the resurrection. Okay, so we'll talk about that. Um, and we, we'll talk about how the resurrection turns our world, the, our, our, our spiritual economy, that's a good way of saying it, it turns our spiritual economy upside down. It turns it on its head. We'll talk all about that. And then thirdly, um, here's what resurrection means for Christians. It means hope, really important. Hope that means something now. Um, and it brings purpose and mission to your, to your life. Christians out of all people on the planet need never to fear about a lack of purpose. Okay? Because of the resurrection. Christians don't need to be scratching our heads going, what am I here for? We're gonna find out. The Bible is extremely clear and it's all wrapped up in, in the resurrection. So first, real history. Um, and because of our last point being mission, being on, we're, that we're on mission, the first point, therefore, is extremely important, especially for our context, because we're called, as you see in the text, and we'll explore it a little bit more later, we are called, as Jesus' followers, to go and tell the world about the resurrection. How do we do that in a place like Seattle? How do we do that in a culture? So here's what this means. It means you're here in Seattle, in this context, for the reason of telling people about hope, the hope of the resurrection. How do you do that in a place like Seattle? It's a really good question. How do we do that? And so the reason I preface that, point one is very apologetic, and I kind of cringe when I hear that term, even though I believe in apologetics. But apologetics has come to mean um, Christian's way of showing how foolish atheists are, or winning a cultural argument, or it's become a, a shorthand for gotcha type of an, an idea. And I want you, I, before we even go into this more apologetic type stuff, that's very helpful, without love, with this information, truth, without love, you will be in this culture <laughs> annoying. <laughs> annoying. Okay, that's my point. Did I, is, did I make that strong enough? Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> now you know where he gets it. Nicole's like, told you he was your kid. Okay. 
First of all, um, it's really important. So in this culture, in Seattle, one of the things that, that um, modern culture will tell you about the resurrection is that, um, yes, there was a historical figure named Jesus, absolutely. And yes, we know he was crucified by the Roman government. That's absolutely true. But the myth and the legend that attached to Jesus came hundreds of years later as the church was orally telling things, the church leaders were trying to propagate this new religion and propagate this new uh, movement, they would add things on based on the communities that they met, the needs of the communities or the cultural um, itching ears of the communities that they met, and they would add things like the deity of Christ, or eventually it began to morph into uh, things like the, resurre- the miracles and the resurrection. You know, so at best, somebody in Seattle will say, um, you know, I believe in the subjective message of the resurrection. When, you know, good will win over evil. After winter comes spring, and I can get on board at best. At best, I will get on board with that. I love that idea, and 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 love wins, and 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 uh, you know all of these things. But Mark, Mark, so you need to understand that it's all fine and good, except for the Gospels themselves don't read that way. Mark would have a challenge for our culture in that way, and that is, it's clear from this text that Mark considers this a historical event. Here's the problem with all of this. Let's just, let me put the Bible aside for a second and just give you some, some empirical facts, some history. Um, there were about, before, before Jesus and after Jesus, there were dozens of messianic movements. Do you, you know that. There were dozens of messianic leaders, um, and they rose up some pretty large uh, uprisings in that day. And typically, when the leader died, he was usually executed. When the Messiah, the Messiah figure had died, that was the end of it. The movement died out. The people following went home. Um, and that was the end of it. There was no more of it. Christianity is the one exception. After Jesus, the Messiah, dies, not only does Christianity survive... Christianity explodes and takes over the Roman world in just a little over 200 years. Christianity, make no mistake about it, for whatever it means out in the culture wars today, from a, from a historian's point of view, from a sociologist's point of view, Christianity is a documented historic phenomena, a historic cultural phenomena. Nowhere, no time in history have we ever seen a movement take over the world and enjoy widespread cultural currency in such a short amount of time as we have Christianity. And it is by far today the largest religion on the planet, the largest faith on the planet. Now, this, this historical fact, this is not controversial. What I just said there is not church propaganda or Christians making things up. This is a, a, you will learn this in a secular school, what I just told you. That historic empirical fact has led many historians, both Christian and otherwise, to scratch their heads and dedicate their entire careers to, to finding out why. How in the world did something like that happen? When we have dozens of other messianic movements that died out as soon as their leaders died, how in the world did this religion take over and become such a dominant force in the world world today? And there's two narratives that you can give for this. 
One is the church's traditional narrative, and that's what Mark is saying, and that is, well, because that leader conquered death and rose from the dead, and people saw him alive afterwards, and it infused his followers with faith and courage and love to go out and serve the world in in phenomenal ways that were cruciform, that were, in other words, they were according to the template of crucifixion and resurrection. In other words, believers would go out and give of themselves at cost to themselves to people who could not love or pay them back of other classes, of other economic uh, uh, classes, indiscriminately creating a community that was unlike and unique to anything the Roman world had ever seen. Um, that's been the traditional answer. That is the, the biblical answer. The other answer has been the, the, the current culture, which is what I just explained, and that is that, well, it was, it was over time, it was, this is just complete myth. He was a historic figure, but later, um, they wisely campaigned to make Jesus more than what he was to capture those people's imaginations. And like I said, the problem with that is the gospels themselves. One is, if you, you can know, let me just read this to you again. It's a short, it's short. This does not read like myth. It doesn't read like historical, uh, like uh, ancient myth. Let me read it to you again. When the Sabbath had pa- was passed, he gives names, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices, he gives facts, so that they might go out and anoint him. And very early on the next day, he gives a timeline, when the sun had risen, it's in the morning, they went to, it, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, he gives dialogue, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? It's very practical. Any woman in that time would be asking that. How in the world, any man in that time the stone was so big would be asking, how in the world are we gonna anoint his body according to our custom? How are we gonna roll that thing away? Very practical. And looking up, they saw the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, very specific, sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and then it describes their emotions. They were alarmed, okay? And he said to them, here's more dialogue, do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified, he has risen, he is not here, see the place where they laid him, gives a specific um, empirical reference, look it, this is where he was, this is where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, Were they filled with faith? They were trembling and astonished that had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Quite simply, just even from from your, I think even from your own eyes, you can see that this does not match with ancient legend or myth material. And we have plenty of ancient uh, mythical genre to compare it to. This is not it. This reads like historical eyewitness, an eyewitness account. And that's, um, that's exactly what it is. Um, even when it comes to ancient, uh, ancient material, we actually have ancient historic genre that we can match to the Gospels, and they're a perfect match. Um, 
Several historians like N.T. Wright and others have noticed that the fact that, first of all, he names names. That's very important when it comes to, I'm talking about not just what we know of, of, of eyewitness literature, I'm talking about ancient eyewitness literature. This is actually a common practice to name names, not, what did I tell you in the beginning, not one time, not twice, but three times. If you go back to the, to the previous chapter, chapter 15, remember in the original, there was, Mark did not write 15, 16. It's just one fluent document. In the, in the chapter back, he mentions these three women again, not once but twice, so three times in totality, which is a common practice. Basically, it was a footnote. This is an ancient footnote saying, these people are the ones that I interviewed, that I got this information from, and you can go, and, and the, the, the common practice was to name them because they were still living, and you could go and ask them to corroborate the story. This is how ancient history was written. And again, like I said, we have many, many other ancient historic documents that we can match the Gospels to, and they fall under the genre of ancient history, uh, eyewitness accounting, not myth or legend. I can read you some myth and legend material, let's say from the Gnostic Gospels, especially the, gospel, um, the one that's made the biggest splash is, is the Gospel of Thomas, right? I can, um, I can read you some expert excerpts from that and you will immediately know the difference between mythical material and ancient historical writing, just at first glance, but then when you keep studying it, you'll find things that are on repetition that were culturally acceptable to do, and this was one of them. They would repeat names at least three times, which meant a, a, it, they were citing. It was a footnote. It was, a, um, it was the way of saying to their audience, this is how you can verify what I'm saying is true, which means that this is written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses so that people could go back and corroborate the story. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they could say when they read Mark's account, which is by far the earliest gospel, we, almost all scholars unanimously agree that Mark was the earliest one. The, the, the others were probably, um, Mark was probably in big circulation, but by the time Matthew and Luke and John wrote theirs to complement or to fill in what, uh, uh, using Mark as a template, we can see, especially in the synoptics, we can see Markan ideas and Markan material throughout Matthew and Luke very, very clearly. So they were using his as a foundation, so to speak, and they filled it in from there. And you could go back. So these, these oral traditions, you know, when, when the modern world says, yeah, it's like the game of telephone. Actually, the way oral tradition worked in the ancient world is probably the exact opposite of the game of telephone. You know, the game of telephone, when you say something and by the time it gets to the end of the line, it's a jumbled mess. There is actually cultural mechanisms within the oral tradition because this has been going on for so years. Oral tradition was the way nomadic people preserved their very culture and identity. It was important that they got it right. And they had mechanisms and ways to repeat and ways to remember to make sure it was precise and to make sure it was accurate. So Mark was probably circulating for a long time before Matthew added his, his account, which is just... Someday we'll go through Matthew and um, I'll just tell you, he's a genius. His brain is, is pretty incredible. But 
He names names. Um, another thing that the culture will tell you, that our culture will say, that if somebody from Seattle might say, fine, Mike, I'll give you that. But here's the, the reality is that that culture was based on um, mythical premise. In other words, the culture itself, its underpinnings already had a cult, what sociologists call a cultural imaginary, meaning that they accepted miracles, um, the resurrection from the dead, the supernatural was a, was a woven idea throughout their culture. Therefore, these things would have been more believable, but we know better. We in the modern world, we've come through the age of science where we're based on empirical evidence and we've, we don't need those superstitions anymore to propel our society forward. Before, they needed that. That was their mechanism of surviving. It was their evolution, if you would, was to use these myths and these legends to, to keep their society coherent, to survive, and all of those things. But we, we're beyond that now. Now we know that no one can raise from the dead. Now we know that there is no supernatural. Now we know all of these things. Therefore, um, but they, did, they, thought it, they thought it was totally plausible, so they believed it. And again, Mark would say, um, wait though. Mark would challenge that. Because if you read this account, you will find that none of these people expected Jesus to raise. Let's read it again. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, what did they do? They bought spices. You know what that means? They thought he was dead. They invested money to buy expensive spices so that they would not go and meet a risen savior, that they would find a dead corpse that they would spice, that they would embalm according to their rituals and according to their traditions. This is not an account of someone that believed that. And by the way, well, look at what the angel says. Verse seven, but go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, look at that last line, just as he told you. Remember, Mark chapter eight, Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 15, Jesus was saying, I'm gonna rise from the dead. I'm gonna rise from the dead. I'm gonna rise from the dead. In fact, remember I told you, they're, they're, um, you know, they were very economic in their writing. For them to repeat something usually means something. Most scholars, I intend to agree, that this means that this was something Jesus would regularly say. It wasn't an account that on this date he said it once, on this date he said it twice, and on this date he said it three times. This is their way of saying this was a, a normal mantra of Jesus. Just like, also the Sermon on the Mount was probably his, his classic sermon that he spoke several places. It wasn't just given once. It was, he would go back to it and hit, you know, every preacher's got their pet things. Um, and, and this was the Sermon on the Mount. It was Jesus' heartbeat. It's what, he, it's what he preached a lot. Well, another thing that he said often at a certain point, he told his disciples all the time, I'm gonna raise from the dead. We're going to Jerusalem and I'm gonna be killed and I'm gonna raise from the dead. 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 And they still are, they're still shocked here that he's raised from the dead. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that they said that so many, he said that so many times and yet you don't see anybody like you'd think one of them would say, hey, you guys, it's day three. I mean, Jesus even gave them a time. Three days later, I'm gonna raise from the dead. You'd think that one of them, just one, would say, hey, you guys, it's almost three days. Should we just go look? Let's go check it out. But none of them do. 
The ones that do go are women, which is another issue that we need to talk about. And they buy spices, not for someone who's, they don't buy, you know, an Easter lily to greet greet Jesus as he comes out of the tomb, because he said, three days, we better get flowers for him. No, they go to anoint his body because they're not expecting him to be risen from the dead, even after he's been repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. So here's what I would say, here's what you can say to the culture that says, well, they just believed in stuff like that back then. You can say, yes, they did, but they were still skeptical of resurrection just for different reasons than us. That's the reality. They were, they were a skeptical culture of supernatural things, and we're a, a skeptical culture of supernatural things, but just for completely different reasons, especially the resurrection. The Greeks had no framework for a resurrection in their belief system, especially because for the Greeks, um, the body and the material things were something, were something to be done away with. A physical bodily resurrection, there's no framework for that in Greek, uh, in Greek philosophy, in Greek religious thought, okay? Um, for the Greeks, getting out, getting out of this material world, getting away from the body, that's the name of the game. Jewish people, they thought of a resurrection, uh, a big, large, general resurrection for all of creation. You, should, you could call it a cosmic resurrection, an eschatological cosmic resurrection sometime at the end of the, at the, end of the age. But they had, they had not thought of an individual raising from the dead as being part of the prophetic eschatological redemptive plan. Yes, it had happened, and Jews were, and are, the least people on the planet to worship a person. So, there was no sense, according to their theology, that Jesus was gonna raise from the dead as part of the redemptive plan of, uh, of the Bible. Their idea of resurrection was a national resurrection and it had to do with Rome leaving, them getting their land back and they would be nationally uh, resurrected. We talked about that last week in Ezekiel 37 with the, with the dry bones. That's what it was, uh, the immediate con- uh, context was about. So, we might be skeptical of the resurrection, sure, for different reasons, but they were too. And you can see it here in the account. They were not expecting it in any way. And finally, um, our culture will say it was propaganda. It was, they, were, they put these fanciful things in to capture the imaginations to get more followers. But the problem with that is, as you know, is that there is so much material in here that is just not, that would not have been popular. Particularly, I'll just name the big one. This to me is one of the, and to a lot of historians, one of the most slam dunks when it comes to the resurrection. And that is, um, the, they record that three, none of the disciples, no men, none of the leaders of the future movement went to go see Jesus. It was three women. In fact, um, there is a contemporary writer, a contemporary back in the first century, first, second, third century, who hated Christianity and made it his mission. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but made it his mission to defunct Christianity. And one of his main arguments was and it shows you where they were as a culture back then. One of his main arguments was, um, we know Christianity can't be true because, because uh, they say that, uh, that three women went and found him risen from the dead. We can't trust women. They're, and he said, literally, they're hysterical. I, that's, that's, that was the word in the writing. I read it, actually, last weekend, and I didn't write it down, but I read the word, his, women are hysterical. This was one of the most leading thought thinkers of the time, 
propagating against the movement of Christianity, and that was we know, we know that this isn't true because they're claiming that women found him risen from the dead. In other words, there's so much, and I could name more, but in this particular text, um, this would not have been something that would have made people sign up at that point to be Christians. Um, women were considered little more than property back then. They're, 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 um, they're, they were not admiss- their witness was not admissible in court, truly. Um, one fam- in, in the Jewish world too, one famous rabbi back then said it'd be better to burn the law than to put it in the hands of a woman. I know, right? We've, we're a little different in our culture, right? And rightfully so. Jesus elevated women and Christianity elevated women, but, but this isn't them being, um, and this is one thing, by the way, our culture loves about Christianity. When they see it elevate women, they go, yay, Christianity, love that part, and it's great. But you need to understand in the context of the, of, of, of the time, the only reason that this would be in here is because it actually happened that way. Not because they were trying to promote something, but because they were just telling the truth. Why did Mary and Mary and, and Salome go? Because, or why is it, are they written in here? Because they went, because it's the truth, it's what happened. Bottom line, this, re, this, this does not read like legend. Now, philosophically speaking, um, and this is my final point on the apologetics point, and I think it's probably the most important You need to understand, because all of that can be lost on you unless you understand the philosophical importance of an objective resurrection. Because people here in Seattle will say to you, I love that you believe in the resurrection. Good for you. It's so good. It's not for me, but I love that you love it. You know, I just, I admire your faith. I have faith in other stuff. It's not for me, but gosh, good for you, right? And what they're saying is, is that I love the idea of a subjective resurrection, the idea behind it. Like I said, spring comes after winter, life wins, you know, Aslan comes to save the day, all of those types of things. Yes, those are good things. As if, as if, um, well, the Bible would say throughout, especially Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that we do not admire people who believe subjectively something that is not objectively true, do we? Think of that. Do we, do we admire um, the person walking on the street that's talking to himself as if another person's there? Do we admire that or do we pity that? Please say it, pity. We, we go, oh, it's sad. Right? Um, in other words, Paul the Apostle said, without the objective historical resurrection, the subjective portion of it means nothing. It's silly. In fact, it's, pitif- it's pitiful. You remember his famous line in, in verse 15, or chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He said, we of Christians are most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're lost in our sins. It means nothing. We're the most to be pitied. We're foolish. We're foolish, foolish, foolish. See, the, the, the Bible would take Seattle's notion of, oh, well, good for you. And we'd say, the, the Bible would say, if it didn't actually happen, no, it's not good for you. To believe in something that's not, that doesn't have actual objective truth to it, it's not good for you. It's, it's sad. It's pitiful. It'll make you do things based on an unreality. It doesn't make any sense. So Christianity, it's really important. This is why we have to kind of 
This is one of those non-negotiables. This is one of those closed-fisted things. We believe to be a Christian, you need to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead physically in history. Otherwise, that is like in the Jenga puzzle. That's the one, if you pull it out, the whole thing will fall. See, it's important. Now, if you've got the objective portion, well, then the subjective part means uh, uh, so much. You need both. I know a lot of Christians, like I kind of said in the beginning, that only love apologetics. That is the objective, historical, scientific stuff. They just only love that. But the, the beauty and the subjective message of the, of the resurrection, in other words, Jesus died and rose for you, for me, that personal part is lost on them. And the Bible would say, no, you need both. And they're, they're not pitted against each other. They're friends. They fuel each other. Because something actually happened, because something actually happened, it fires me up. Do, you really, do we really think that, the early, that Christianity overtook the Roman Empire? Do we really think that Christianity overtook the Roman Empire in a little over 200 years because Christians were walking around the Roman Empire going, hey, hey, you know what? We believe in life and spring comes after winter. And you know, all is gonna work out in the end. Is that how Christianity got there? No, it was that. But there was a because. There is life, there is hope because something actually did factually happen in our history for all people. See how the two work together? You gotta have them both. On the other hand, there are Christians that they don't know how to explain the truth stuff, the objective stuff. They're just, all I know is it works for me and it's beautiful. Great, but you you need to understand It doesn't work unless you know these things. It's important that you understand this actually really did happen. We need both. We need a full-bodied, both objective, subjective idea of resurrection. Okay, there's point one. Point two, this is an explosion of God's grace. How so? Just, there's a few beautiful lines here. Look what Jesus, well, the angel, Jesus is giving them a message through the angel, right? Let's read it, verse six. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. Here it is. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. The reason we want to, the reason at Calvary Chapel, it's so important for us to read an entire work, to read an entire book, is that somehow we can capture the narrative flow of what's going on and we can get the literary context. We can understand the context by which things are saying. And you need to understand the context behind this line, but go and tell his disciples, is in the context of betrayal and cowardice. All of his disciples, except for two, left Jesus. They ran. They were not loyal to him. In spite of him telling them, I'm gonna die, we're going to Jerusalem. They're thinking we're going for revolution. They're thinking we're going to take the Davidic throne. Even though, I mean, that narrative was so powerful that even though Jesus kept saying, no, we're gonna go take the throne by dying on a cross, 
and I'm gonna raise again. I'm gonna die, I'm gonna raise again. I'm gonna die, I'm gonna raise again. They were so shocked by what, when, G, when Jesus, when actually things started to happen to him that he said would happen, the, that the temple guards came and arrested him in the garden, they were so shocked that they fled. In other words, what did they think? They thought this is gonna amount to be like every other messianic movement. We found out that we're duped. He's gonna die, and if we don't separate ourselves and cause some distance here, then we're all gonna die. This is it, roll it up, boys, go home. Okay? That's what's going on here. So here's, here's the shocking thing about this line. You'd expect the message to be, but go and tell those worthless, lack of faith, idiot, dumb disciples that if they have any shot to getting back into this movement, they better meet me at a certain time at a certain place. This is their last chance. You'd expect something like that. But no, he doesn't even mention it. Go tell his disciples and Peter. And this is what I mean by the resurrection completely turns our spiritual economy upside down because we live in a culture and in a world, um, and I, I would dare say within ourselves, where we earn a place in a movement, where we earn a place in society. We have what we call currency, social currency, moral currency, maybe ethical currency. In other words, because I am a functioning member of society, I've earned a couple of rights. I have, a, I, I have earned a place in society. And, we, and sociologists tell us that we do this as soon as we enter into a room. Our brains are sizing people up, comparing other people without us even knowing it. I'm dressed better than them, or they work over there, and then we're just categorizing, categorizing. I could probably get along with him better than I get along with him. I probably, you know, we were just kind of doing that. And here, we see something completely opposite. Jesus saying, you're not a part of my movement because you've earned a way in. You're a part of my movement because of what I've done for you and on your behalf. So come. You really see it with Peter, right? And Peter. You know why. Remember Peter. He was the most egregious of them all. Remember I told you a few weeks ago, if you were here, I don't think Peter's a coward. I really don't. All the other disciples ran and fled Peter and John, Peter went into a, to watch the trial of Jesus, he followed him to a very, very dangerous place. A place that could easily get him killed. And yet he followed Jesus there. I think when Jesus said, I'm ready to go to death for you, I think, I, when Peter said that, I'm ready to go to, to my death for you, I think Peter absolutely meant it and I think he was ready to back it up. Uh, what do you see Peter doing in the garden when the, when the guards came? Oh my gosh, you know, he just goes for it. You know, fisherman with a sword. Um, not trained, and he just, you know, not aiming right. You know, whacks off the guy's ear. You know, Peter's oops moment. But you know, his heart, is that cowardice? It can be a lot of things, but is it cowardice? No, I don't think so. Jesus has to tell him, sheathe your sword, put it away. It's not, you don't say that to a coward. You say that to a very brave, misdirected, brave person. 
then after that, all the other disciples, they flee, they run. Peter does not. Peter follows. You know? He goes right into the enemy territory. He's warming his hands by the fire. So what does it mean then that he was, what is is the denial of Christ to Peter? Well, I I would tell you, it makes it much worse. This is why Peter went out and wept bitterly. I believe, and you can, you know, you can be wrong if you want to. I, I believe <clears throat> that Peter gave up hope in Jesus. I believe Peter's warming himself by the fire and he sees his savior who's supposed to take the Davidic throne. Remember the person who had the biggest problem with Jesus' mission was Peter. Right? Peter said, no, Jesus, stop talking like that. This is not gonna happen to you. And what did Jesus say? Depart, you know, get away from me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about, basically, right? And then another time, Peter tried to gently confront Jesus on this mission. He's got the biggest problem with this mission. Finally, he's there. He's watching Jesus getting beaten. And he knows, I think in Peter's mind, he knows he sees the, the, the miscarriage of the justice of the trial. He sees the whole thing. And I think he knows Jesus is going to die. And I think Peter is saying, I was fooled. I was wrong. This is not the man. Do you know him? I think Peter's no was no. It was a betrayal. Absolutely. It was a denial. But I think it was mixed with, I don't know anymore. I don't know who this guy is anymore. I don't know if I can follow him anymore. It was so, this part of the plan was so jarring to Peter's constitution that he couldn't, the only, he couldn't, it was just a psychological rendering going on in his mind. You're with him, I know you know him. I don't know him anymore. I don't know him. I thought I did, but I don't. Maybe both. I think I have a more challenging case than you do. I think my case of the narrative through chapter eight all the way to there with Peter challenging them and being brave, I think, the, I think my explanation holds up better than the traditional explanation that he was scared and trying to get out. That's what I think. And I, th- I, and I think it could be both. I'm sure, I'm sure he, yes, I'm sure he wanted to get out. But it wasn't Purely, in my mind, it can't be purely that he was just scared and I'm going to ditch Jesus who I believe is the Messiah. I don't think that. It goes against everything we've seen against Peter thus far. The guy's trying to walk on water for Jesus. He's sinking. The guy's not a coward. Uh Uh-uh. To me, that does not line up. Sure, he wanted to get out, but probably after he he thought to his mind, I've been duped. And now I'm in a precarious situation and I want to get out. <laughs> Maybe that. But, but yeah, yeah. When, when you get in a car accident or some kind of thing happens, you go into this shock. Yes. Everything is happening so fast and it's... Oh boy, I know it. And I always say, this is not what I wanted to happen. This, this is completely out of my control. Yeah. You would have been in shock. Oh, Yeah. Yes. Oh, can you imagine the, all the emotion that he's going through at this point? No wonder he went out and wept bitterly. And Peter, 
Go tell the disciples and Peter. It's so filled with grace. Now, here's the thing. Peter ends up being the leader of Christianity. And here's what I mean by the resurrection turning things upside down. The greatest offender of the movement, arguably the greatest living traitor because the other one killed himself, Judas, but Peter, who had denounced, denied Jesus, however you want to read it, it's, it's it's an egregious act, however you slice it, he becomes the leader of the movement of Christianity. That is so backwards to how we do things. We would never let a guy like that lead. We would never let a guy like that lead our corporation. We would never let a guy like that lead. If, if, if that kind of a egregious sin was found in a political leader, it would be exploited. It would be grounds to get him out of there. All of those things. And yet Christianity has Peter, the greatest offender, being its greatest leader. Why? Because here's how the gospel works that makes Christian, Christianity so different. different. And I, I really hope I can get this point across because it's just the most, it's so beautiful. For, for Christianity, when it comes to the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, you understand what that means for us. Jesus redeemed the world and he was raised through embracing weakness on the cross. That's what that looks like. And the idea is the more we die and embrace our own weakness, the greater, of, the greater we understand God's grace and the more we are raised in this new freedom and new power. Peter, according to this economic, spiritual economic model, was the greatest candidate to lead the church because he was the greatest sinner, which meant he came into contact with the greatest amount of God's grace, which meant he was, he was ripe for being able to display what Christianity was really about. And that's so hard for us because we like to not talk about the things that we're weak. We don't like to admit that we're wrong. And here's the thing that we don't like. It's so hard for us in our culture. Humility is, is in the DNA of what it means to be a Christian. Repentance. Uh, I was just reading this fascinating book that was comparing Augustine's Confessions to, um, you know, another man that re- wrote a auto- autobiography named The Confessions was Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 18th century. And he, he wrote it, many scholars believe that he wrote it as a, um, almost as a joust with Augustine's Confessions. And one of the clear differences between the two is that they, they tell similar stories. You remember... Um, Augustine told the story of when he stole pears. Has anybody read the Confessions? Well, in in the book, Augustine recalls the story that he and his friends, they went and they stole these pears. And the thing about it was these pears weren't good. They didn't need them. He had his own garden full of pears, good pears. They did it just for the sake of breaking the law. Just for the sake of doing something wrong, him and his buddies took it and did it. And from that, Augustine says, "This this is sin within me. The problem with the world is me, Augustine would say. There's something innate in me that is sinful that wants to break 
the law. Where Rousseau came later, he tells a similar story of how he stole asparagus, I think. I think it was asparagus. I don't know why these guys are raiding vegetable gardens in the ancient world. I don't know. It was a thing apparently. But he stole, stole asparagus and he said he did it because of the peer pressure of his friends. And his point was, and this is where you're going to get Christian society and Rousseauic society, which is basically the foundation of our Western society, and that is humans are made basically good and we're corrupted by institutions and by society. Rousseau would say, you have innate desires, innate things within you, and there are just really simple pleasures and simple answers, and if society would just let you do that, you'd be fine, you'd be perfect. But because society says, no, that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and this is wrong, because they restrict you to act a certain way and dress a certain way, you are then inauthentic. This is where the idea of it's the biggest sin in our culture is to not be yourself, Rousseau is the one that really start planted that in the, in the garden of our culture, to keep going with the metaphor. And therefore, institutions become the problem. Religion, and you know him and his friend Voltaire, they began the French Revolution. It was an attack against institutions, against religion, against those things, because they, saw, they said, no, man is innately good, we're fine. It starts with pride, see? Man is innately good, it's society that corrupts, apparently forgetting that societies and institutions are made up of individuals, right? So, so yeah, and in, in this you get the difference between a world idea and a, and a Christian idea. The world will say, no, I'm good, and it's everyone else's fault. If I've done anything wrong, it's because, well, you, let's see how you would act if you had parents like mine, Right? Well, yeah, the, the reason that there's, and this is straight from Rousseau's, uh, his book, Confessions, when he talks about a prostitute that he had met, the reason she's a prostitute is because of the social conditions that she's in. It's because of the arts and sciences. His first greatest discourse was, a, was it was a, supposed to be a competition to write a, a piece showing how good arts and science has been for society and Rousseau hands in one that's a polemic against arts and sciences in society and how we should tear it all to the ground. And it causes all, and then Freud took that. Sigmund Freud later took that and said, societies are based, or, societies are always known for what they prohibit. We prohibit sexual ethics. He was, a major, he was big on everything's about sexual desire. We prohibit sexual desire. Our society will explode that way. Okay? So it went from there. Where, and here's the point I want to get to. Christianity starts at a different place. Christianity says, no, 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 the problem with the world is me. And one of the greatest hindrances that we have and that the world has at accepting God's grace is that it's everyone else's fault first we're all victims in our worlds. Now, that doesn't mean that there, are, that, that there aren't real victims. There are. But when there's no sense of confession, uh, my professor has noticed this in the church. He just recently said that, uh, he said back in the 90s, I noticed at the church that people, when they would give testimonies, you know, and churches would say, hey, let's have, your tes- let's have someone share their testimony. They would come up and say, I sinned and I did this and I did this and I did this. He goes, now it's very different. When in church cultures, when churches, someone shares their testimony, 
He notices that people come up and say, well, I was victimized by this and I grew up a victim of abuse and I have this and have this. He said, which is, it might be true, but you see how the cultural narrative has changed. It used to be popular to say, I've messed up. I made bad choices. I made a mistake. Now it's very popular to say, I'm the, vi- the reason I did that is because I'm the victim of these things. And the point is, those things might, sure, there are victims, absolutely. But the Bible would start by saying, the problem with the world is me. Augustine would say, there's something in me that wants to rip against the fabric of the universe, that wants to break the rule for the sake of breaking the rule. I want to be the one that gets to choose what's right, true, good, and beautiful, not God. I'm the owner, no longer the tenant. And the the resurrection turns that whole thing upside down. Peter received such grace because he was able to repent. He was able, I mean, you talk about the difference between Judas and Peter. Peter was able to say, I've sinned. Department, remember Peter's famous line, he falls on his knees before Jesus after the fish, when Jesus catches all that fish or tells Peter to catch all the fish. He falls on his knees and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Remember that scene? Beautiful scene. And Jesus says, no, 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 come with me. Later, Peter is fishing, right? You know, Peter, if, if, this, if this angel had said, just tell the disciples, what would Peter have said? If that was all that he said, go tell the disciples and didn't mention Peter, what would Peter have said? You guys go, can't mean me. Not me. This is so beautiful, and Peter. And there's Peter fishing. Do you remember that beautiful scene in John? He's fishing with the disciples. And they see somebody on the shore that have made a fire, calling them in. And remember he says that thing, kind of that inside line to Peter, kind of that wink, wink to Peter. He says, hey, Peter, try throwing your nets on the other side. Peter knew. It's Jesus. And what did Peter do? He dove out of the boat. He just, and swims to shore, and the other disciples are trying to keep up. And there's this, Jesus is making breakfast for him on the shore. And they have this beautiful conversation. Remember the conversation? You guys know it. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? You know, I can just picture Peter shuffling with the the gravel under his feet. You know I love you, Lord. What does he say? Feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, because you're in contact with this love, well, let me say this, because you're in contact with your sin in in your shadow side, the dark side of you, Because of that, you're gonna be in contact with a love that's gonna so radically change your life that you're gonna have to lead some other people. Lead some other people. And that's how it works in Christianity. That's why we start with our, and look, here's the thing. Nobody likes to admit that they're wrong. Nobody does. But we have to. That's what this is. Every morning, every Sunday, this is a humbling thing. You, you cannot really come on behalf of your, 
your abusers. They've got to come to the table themselves. You can't come on behalf of society and how messed up it is. You've got to come yourself and say, I, I. Romans chapter five says it best. And that it says so good, I don't want to butcher it. Romans, good thing I've had this handy dandy thing here. Look, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, that is society, that is systemic, but look, what it also is, because all sin. It's also individual, it's both. Let me read it again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all people, why? Because all people sin. It's Romans, that's Romans 5 verse 12, because all people sin. It's both. And that's how we start. Okay, holy mackerel. It's your guys' fault this time. Um, finally, mission. Um, and I just have to say these really beautiful things to you because it's, they're beautiful. Look at these two words that go out. Um, one, um, and this will be really fast, if I can get back to my text. Yeah, there it is. This will be quick. Look what he says. Number one, do not be afraid. Because of the re- resurrection, do not be afraid. And then he says, but go tell. But go tell. Don't be afraid, but go tell. Don't be afraid, but go tell. Um, in other words, the resurrection saves us um, from this world, for this world. I didn't even write that down, I like that. The resurrection saves us from this world, don't be afraid, and for this world, go tell. Go. And it's really important that we hold that balance together. That's extremely important. Because on the one hand, we as Christians can vilify the world and shut it out and just keep our little our little group together and circle the wagons and, and just keep away from you know, the bumblebee thing. You don't mess with them. They won't mess with you. Just to keep it like that, right? That's, that's one extreme. But no, he says, no, the resurrection is for the world. There's no other religion that talks about a bodily resurrection the way Christianity does. You know, what the resurrection is at the end of time, it's embodied. Jesus was risen the material world. In Genesis, you will not see the the material things that God made as evil, and the spiritual stuff is good. That's Greek philosophy. The Bible would say, no, it's all good. You know what heaven is described as? A supercharged, well, heaven is described as ordinary life the way it ought to be. (laughs) Eating. Uh, we were watching a show the other night and there was this beautiful scene of, a, of an old grandpa and a young uh, uh, 20-something grandson sitting in a chairs together around a fire and just enjoying each other's company. You know, the, the, the problem with this world is that it's wonderful, but it's always leaving. Leaving, those moments are fading. That's the problem. Heaven is, resurrection is, those things 
are amplified and they'll never go. Perfect relationship, perfect, they'll be hugging, kissing, running, jumping, dancing, eating, all of the things we love. It, the heaven is, is a, a, a resurrection of the material order unto God in the way, that it was always, the way that it was always meant to be. Renee pointed that out in our home group last week that she said it's a bodily thing and how amazing is that? That I will have a body. You're not gonna need that wheelchair in heaven, Renee. Praise the living God, right? It's amazing. We will be, we will be as we ought to be in every single way. And so will this world. And so that means, what does that mean for us now? It means we care very much about material things. We care about the homeless. This is why we do the, we partner with Emmanuel, because we care. We care about their bodies. We care about the sores that are on their, that that they're getting from being outside. We care that they stay warm. We wanna make sure that they're fed. Is that, well that won't solve homelessness. That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is, we care, we love, because we see a resurrection that someday all the should have beens will be. So it gives us, it lets us be able to take some risks. Why? Because, um, well, this world is telling you, I know, you guys, it's, does this answer your question, Craig? Is my sermon gonna be shorter? This world will tell you, what, what is death for us? It's when this world says, when most of us believe this is the only money I'll ever have. This is the only family I'll ever have. This is the only opportunity I'll ever have. This is the only career I'll ever have. This is the only this I'll ever have. Then what is death when that thing is ripped away from you? A lot of us are in despair because we've drunk the Kool-Aid of this culture that says this is the only life we're gonna have. Grab it and seize it. But see, a Christian says, no, 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 no. Someday... I will have the relationship I've always wanted. Someday, I will be in the marriage I've always wanted. Someday, I will be completely secure. And that means I can take risks right now. That means I can stick in the situation I'm in right now. Because I'm not, now, if, if this life is all you have, then oh gosh, there should be a much higher divorce rate. And there should be much other things. Because hey, get out of that, and if this is all you got, then get what you need. But don't, you guys, the resurrection is real. To a Christian, this is actually going to happen. We are going to, for real, we are going to know each other forever. That's real. I'm gonna know you forever. And that means I can take some risks right now. That means I can live with some bravery and some courage and some air in my lungs right now. Because I'm not so scared, see. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid. But go tell, love. Bring the message of the resurrection everywhere you go, whether it's bringing you know, Cheez-Its and ginger ale to a neighbor, or whether it's just a smile and saying, good to see you today. Whether it's giving a bus driver a baseball hat and saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you're, thanks for showing up on time. Richard told me that, a passenger gave him a, a Mariner's hat, a brand new one, and said, hey, I appreciate you always being on time. I really appreciate that. In Richard's world, that kind of kindness in the bus world goes a long way. It sticks out like a, like a red rose on a winter day. That's us, guys.
That's how it goes.